0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. The odds of March are upon us and upon Lord Methuen, as you'll hear later this month. It is 1902 and there are 12 weeks of warfare left, although hardly any of the soldiers on both sides realised this. However, one of the few who began to suspect that time was up was General Jan Smuts. He may have been fighting onwards through the Cape in good faith, yet he was aware that Uprising of Cape Afrikaners, which he was supposed to stoke, had not transpired. The general had failed in his first mission. Now he was riding back to van Reinstorp with around 70 other Boers after their short stop at the beach for little R&R, as we heard about last week. As they rode back to the main commander, Smuts had no idea what terrible carnage had been visited on a small community of Khoisan, the Nama people. What is known as the Lilyfontaine Massacre would shake his resolve and cause more questions as he sought to fight what he thought was a just war against the unjust British. However, one of his own men was going to shatter this preconceived notion in Smuts' mind and it involved a beautiful oasis in the semi-desert called Lilyfontaine Mission Station. Lilyfontaine means Lily Spring and was named after the beautiful white lilies found around the oasis. Riding with Smuts and his commander was Denise Rates, and he too would be shocked by what he saw. So initially, Smuts's plan was to drive further northwards, around 150 miles north, to the important copper mining centre of O'Keepe. There were two villages around this mining town called Concordia and Springbok. The places were held by British garrisons, and he decided to look them up, Rates writes about Smuts. So far as I could gather, His intention was not so much to capture the towns as to lure a relief expedition thither, for he calculated that, if he threatened them, the British would be compelled to hurry a force round by sea to their assistance. Smuts would probably then break away south, making for the settled districts around Cape Town, where then he hoped to sow carnage. The men of his commander were not entirely certain of his aims, because Smuts was brilliant at keeping his plans confidential. That was one way of avoiding whatever spying was going on. The men were enthusiastic at the thought of raiding down towards Table Bay. They even talked of taking Cape Town itself. The outlying patrols were once again ordered back to Smuts's commander, and he planned his next move. After a few days, the entire commander had assembled, and now they faced a long, dry journey through what Rates called the barren, rugged country of Namaquiland. Smuts knew that he could not take a large commander through this region there, just was not enough food and water to sustain the entire unit. So he broke them into smaller parties with instructions to make for a point in the Kamasbergen mountains. Reitz was now Smuts' main scout and he headed off with the general towards the mission station at Lilyfontein. It took six days of riding through the desert, but when they arrived, all that awaited them was... The terrible smell of death. We found the place sacked and gutted and, among the rocks beyond the burned houses, lay twenty or thirty dead hottentots, still clutching the antiquated muzzle loaders. This was Maritz's handiwork. The stench was overpowering as these bodies had lain here for weeks. Smuts was silent, saying nothing to his men but his face was grim. I saw him walk past the boulders where the dead lay, and on his return he was moody and curt, as was his custom when displeased. Smuts began to piece together what happened, and he spent his entire war trying to avoid excessive brutality, particularly when it came to black South Africans, who he regarded as victims of a white man's war. Smuts had lectured long and hard about leaving blacks alone, now there were black bodies unburied in what looked like an execution-style ending. They all knew instinctively who was to blame. It was Marnie Maritz. He had been fighting against the British and what he saw as their able allies, blacks, for most of his life. He had been born in Kimberley in 1876 as the Diamond Rush took hold, but had moved to the Transvaal in 1895. Maritz was incensed by how the British inexorably rolled over South Africa, colonising all before them. In combat, as Martin Bossenbrook points out, Moritz had cut his teeth fighting against Jameson and his raiders. When the war broke out, Moritz fought with the Transvaal Police Unit, the Zarps, in the Southern Front in Natal. Then he joined Dani Teron's Special Reconnaissance Corps. Being part of this specialised unit took a high degree of courage. By March 1901, he had arrived in the Cape Colony, where he gained a reputation as a ruthless tyrant, respected, but hardly loved by his men. He was a zealous patriot and a born guerrilla leader. He was also a psychopath mentally and physically scarred by warfare and began to target blacks who he saw as allies of white English speakers. Moritz lost touch with his own people's religious core. He turned from zealot to malevolent force. Remember how I explained that Moritz survived a wound that would have killed most men? As Dines rates had told the story of his great gash below his right armpit, his lungs visible, no ordinary mortal would have made it, but somehow Moritz did. Then he threw himself into the task assigned by General Jan Smuts, head off to New in the far northwest of the Cape. It was a simple plan, cause chaos there and draw British units from the south, which would be transported by sea. Smuts knew that this would leave the few roads to Cape Town open at least that's what appeared to be the strategy, as Reitz and his fellow Boers discussed around their campfires at night. Meritz first visited Lilyfontein Mission Station on the slopes of the Kamisberg on the 11th of January 1902 and warned the Khoisan Nama people living near the station that any form of collaboration with the British would be punishable by death. When he returned around the 27th of February 1902, Manny Meritz then detained the chief Wesleyan missionary living at the station. The Khoisan Nama people did not appreciate this outsider telling them how to live their lives and a scuffle ensued. The Khoisan are fighting people and that day they fell upon Maritz and his men who managed to escape by the skin of their teeth. He saw this as an unforgivable act and was determined to make them pay. On the morning of the 31st of January 1902 Maritz returned with reinforcements and decimated the people living there. 35 koi were shot down and the entire mission station fled in panic. The Boers then looted the village taking 1,000 bags of grain, 500 head of cattle and 3,000 sheep. Then they raised the mission station to the ground. When he was finished, Maritz began to hunt the survivors in the desert scrub around the station. More than a 100 others were later described as injured in the incident, although this figure has been disputed. What is not disputed is the effect of the massacre on Boers who saw the bodies. It was more than a month later and Smuts was now standing amongst the corpses. There, lying as if left by fate, too, was a book. It was the German edition of Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason, as if to emphasise the symbolic nature of the killing of these ancient people. Kant, the philosopher who symbolised the age of reason, here lay his philosophy amongst the ashes of the wesleyan mission church and there stood smuts and his men in the midst of all that is unreasonable savage even so what in this war and in fact all wars is the dividing line between legitimate retaliation and plain vengeance why had maritz and his men not dug graves as was the custom amongst both boer and britain when a battle had ended what had twisted Maritz's mind to such an extent that he would forsake his deep-seated Christian learning to lead such pure hatred? To avenge the insult, he wiped out the settlement, which seemed to many of us a ruthless and unjustifiable act, writes the Rates. This youngster, who had seen many of his own men shot down by soldiers black and white, was stunned by what had happened. Even now, Rates could be shocked by the horror of war. And General Smuts, who had gone on to lead men in two more wars and to become his country's Prime Minister, now camped at this mission station hundreds of miles from civilization and realized his own people were also at a crossroads. Which road would they take from here? The low road to plumb the depths of man's worst instincts, or the high road to aim for an advanced community here on the plains of South Africa. We lived in an atmosphere of rotting corpses for some days, for we had to wait here for news that our forces had arrived within striking distance of the copper mines, wrote right, rates right. Eventually and thankfully, General Smuts ordered his men to move out to a place called Silver Fountains, where Commandant Bouvet had arrived. Marnie Meritz was there too and General Smuts asked him to explain what had happened at Lilyfontaine Mission Station. He wanted to hear Moritz's side of the story. Smuts himself was grappling with his decision only the previous week to have the treasonous colonial Lambert Lem Kolein executed for being a spy and could hardly call Moritz to account when all about were aware of Smuts's own dark moment. Moritz explained how the Nama had almost killed him and why he decided to teach them a lesson. And yet Smuts, the great legal mind that he was, knew this was war. Both sides were shooting. No one is immune, and restraint is profoundly important. Wasn't this what led to Breckham Morant's rampage, where he murdered captured Boers out of hand? And why had Moritz decided to wreak revenge on the entire community, men, women, and children? There's a great deal of revisionism around this incident, particularly in modern South Africa, as you can imagine. In the Khoisan Nama oral tradition, it is said that Maritz lost 30 Boers when they attacked him on the first day, with only a handful of Nama dying in the initial exchange. This is not true, but you can understand the reason for the myth-making. Maritz had entered the station premises, with eight men initially, and left with all eight. Then he returned with an entire commando to teach the blacks a lesson. This was completely counter to the rules that the Boer generals followed through the war. General Smuts had ordered his men to observe these rules and had stated in his order specifically that this applied to colored as well as white prisoners and spies. What Reitz didn't mention in his book was that Maritz didn't just shoot the men of the village. He hunted down the entire community like animals and then shot up and burned the church for good measure. It was his descent into the heart of darkness, as though a central figure in a Joseph Conrad novel. Here, in the burning Namaquiland desert of South Africa, where the parched landscape mesmerizes you, where temperatures can top 40 degrees Celsius and snakes and scorpions slither and slide past you at night, all semblance of civilization had seeped away. We will leave this desperate place for now and head towards the western Transvaal, where General Coors de la Rey and General Christian de Wett were due to deliver a rather embarrassing blow to the British Empire. First, de Wett, who was once again surrounded by one of Lord Kitchener's drives. It seemed to me that my best plan would be to go with President Steyn and the government to the Witkoppis, which lay between Harry and Freda, writes de Wett in his memoir called Three Years' War. On this occasion, he would have a great deal more difficulty in escaping from the English than during the previous drive. The force was larger than before. There were thousands of mounted British infantry approaching from Villiersdorp, Stanerton, Folk's and Lang's Neck. They extended across the country in one long line. The whole cordon actually numbered 60,000 English troops, all trying to capture General De Witt and the elusive Free State President Stain. And again, on this occasion, they did not attempt to drive us against one or other of the blockhouse lines, but they came column on column from all sides and formed a big circle around us. General De Wett received the news of this force from Commandant Hermanus Boerter, who said that one of De Wett's commanders, Mentz, had actually managed to make it through this cordon by the skin of his teeth by moving east at just the right time. By the 23rd of February 1902, de Vett was near the Cornelis River with his initial plan to try and break through the cordon between Freda and Boote's Pass. His hopes were dashed, as his scouts reported, the only way out was through Karl Kranz or the Halsprate River. That's the other direction. De Vett was aware that if he failed, the war would probably be over because President Steyn would be captured. Travelling with him were the burgher commanders from Frieda and Frankfurt, Stanerton and Wackerstrom. Beside the above burghers, I had with me old men and children and others who were non-combatants. There were two thousand people moving with the vet, all enclosed within the British Drive. The vet thought about his options. Then he gave orders for the commander to close up and follow him through a small gap near Brachvontaine close to the Horseplate River. The vet was using a small wagon hauled by eight fast-moving mules This by no means was the slow ox wagon of the past. The wagon had accompanied me into the Cape Colony and since that time, for 14 weary months, had never left me. Behind the horsemen came the aged and the sick also in wagons and lastly the cattle divided into various herds. It was a biblical moment as the vet felt he was an Israelite being chased by Pharaoh. Just after they passed the Halsprate River, they saw their enemy. The English lined up about three hundred yards in front of us and opened fire. Some of the Boers wavered and turned. Debet tried to force his way ahead and saw that the men under Commandant Ross, Buter and Alberts did not hesitate. These officers and men stormed the nearest position of the enemy who were occupying a fort on the brow of a steep bank. I shouted to my command, Charge! At the same time, the general hauled out his shambokh and began to lay into the Boers, who continued to hesitate. Eventually, 250 men joined him, but there was a great deal of confusion. A battle had begun. Civilians were mixed in with the commando. Animals were rearing. The English were firing with artillery and machine guns. Worse, Devet had two of his sons with him. One, Kuerti, tried to follow his father, but then got lost in the melee. Devet found his second son, Isaac, and told him to stay close. The were now firing from not only in front but also on our right and there was nothing for it but to clear a road for ourselves. It took 40 minutes of hard fighting. Then General de Witt and his 250 men broke through. Their troubles were only just beginning because a few hundred yards further on they came upon more English defences. The enemy had dug trenches 30 to 40 paces from each other and inside each of these were up to 30 men. They also had a Maxim Nordenfeld machine gun which kept up a hot fire. But soon it was silenced as the gunners were shot down. The Boers had to leave the machine gun. There was no time to loot. It was now clear that the English too had begun to retreat. The general called the commander forward and they took stock. Twelve were badly wounded, two critical. One was von der Merwe, a member of President Steyn's bodyguard. The other was a boy 13 years old named Ulfie. They hurried on and it was at sunrise the following day that van der Merwe died. The boy had already been relieved of his sufferings. Thus, once again, the soil drank the blood of a child, writes the vet. Eleven men were dead, ten seriously injured. But those who had made it through the storm of bullets included President Steyn, members of the Free State Government, and their Reverend D. Kestel of the Harrismith Dutch Reformed Church. Later, de Vec found out that the English commander in charge was his old enemy, Colonel Remington. Both sides were treated to deal with their wounded. The next day we went to bury our dead, but found that the enemy had already done so. But, as the graves which they had made were very shallow, we dug them deeper. The night of 25th February, another 350 Boers broke through the English cordon. Two were killed, 11 wounded. The English narrowed the circle still further, and then General de Wet realized that he may be safe, along with around 600 of his men, but the rest of his commando were in big trouble. On the 27th of February, 1902, the day dawned with de Wet recalling how important it was in the Boer calendar. It was Majuba Day, 27th of February, 1881, the date of the famous battle that had been fought. Nineteen years on from this day, the Boers had suffered a terrible defeat at Partenberg, where they lost General Piet Coronier. But it was 27th of February, 1902, and this time the Boers lost again. Commandant van der Merwe and 400 of de Wet's men fell into Remington's hands. Not only his men, but also his son, Jacobus O'Quirti, whose horse had been shot out from under him. Kuiti was marched away as a prisoner and ended up in Santa Helena until after the war. General Devent had escaped again, but this time his costs were greater than at any stage before, because not only had many of the men been taken but all his cattle, which ought to have served as food to our commandos and families, but which the enemy had captured. For months now, the Boers under their mercurial leader, De had managed to smuggle the all-important cattle away. These animals were their main food source. And in typical De fashion, he writes, We had always been able until now to get them safely away. The unevenness of the felt here was greatly in our favor. This time we could not. How am I to explain the inexplicable? We had sinned, but not against England. Remember how De Wett had railed about his own people who were now fighting for the English? His own brother, Pete. The walls of these merciless British columns were closing in, and De Wett was seeking spiritual assurance. At the same time, he thought prosaically about his strategy and decided that the only course of action would be for him, President Steyn, and the few hundred survivors to head into the Transvaal and join General Coeur de la Rey. As we'll hear next week, de la Rey was about to reel in a really big catch. One of England's most famous generals, Lord Methuen. He wasn't just any general, he was Lieutenant General Lord Methuen, a three-time winner at Belmont, Graspan and Moder River. He was also a general defeated at Fontaine and a serial stalker, as Martin Bossenbrook calls him, of both De Wett and De More importantly for both Boer generals, He was also personally responsible for burning down both of their farms. This was going to be a personal blow struck by Dalaray. However, as you'll hear, the cranky and crafty Boer General was also to display the kind of chivalry and victory long thought dead. But that's an amazing story for next week. So in the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. And thanks to the new followers from the United Arab Emirates and Denmark. Welcome. If you have any comments or messages, you can contact me through the website abwarpodcast.com or my Twitter account at deslatham. So until next week, goodbye. O bring mich terug naar je Transval, daar waar mijn harteboom daar onderen die is bij de groen doring boom daar won met daremare daar onderen die is bij die groen doring boom daar